0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Courtney B. Vance started acting in college. He went to Yale Drama School where he met his future wife. Angela Bassett. And as far as first big gigs go, you could do a lot worse than the one Courtney had. He starred in the original production of August Wilson's Fences, first at the Yale Repertory Theater in 1985, then on tour, then later on Broadway in 1987. He played Corey in the play, opposite James Earl Jones as Troy. The role earned Vance a Tony nomination. He's gone on to work on the big and small screen. He played assistant DA Ron Carver on Law & Order Criminal Intent. He had great parts in military films like The Hunt for Red October and Hamburger Hill. But it wasn't until the 2010s that his career trajectory really changed. He was cast as Johnny Cochran in the TV miniseries The People vs. O.J. Simpson. It's a part that in the hands of other actors could have easily become cartoonish, like Jackie Chiles on Seinfeld. Nancy's Cochran, though, was nuanced, complex, and very, very good at public speaking.
0: Mr. Darden's remarks this afternoon are perhaps the most incredible remarks I have heard in a court of law in my 32 years of practice. His remarks are deeply demeaning to African-Americans. And so first and foremost, Your Honor, I would like to apologize to African-Americans across this country. It is preposterous to say that African Americans collectively are so emotionally unstable that they cannot hear offensive words without losing their moral sense of right and wrong.
1: To the surprise of pretty much no one, Vance won an Emmy for his performance. And the part opened the door to even more. Lovecraft Country, Genius Aretha, and his newest project, 61st Street. The show, which Vance also executive produced, follows a Black teenager named Moses. He's a promising high school track star who becomes the prime suspect in a case that left a police officer dead. Vance plays the part of Franklin Roberts in the show, a public defender who takes up Moses' case. In this clip from early on in the series, Moses is in police custody, Franklin has come to talk to him. Moses just signed a memorandum of cooperation with the police about the events that took place on the day of the incident. Franklin tells him that was a mistake.
0: What was the very last thing I said? We just talked about what happened in the car. Moses, Moses. It sounds like he was trying to help me. Help you? Yeah, that's what it felt like. And now? How does it feel now? I don't feel guilty. I don't feel like I'm no murderer or nothing. That piece of paper you signed, in the eyes of the law, it says you're both. Law ain't right, Mr. Franklin. the law ain't
1: right. Courtney B. Vance, welcome to Bullseye. I'm happy to have you on the show. Good to be here. This is for a man who only recently made a name playing Johnny Cochran. It's a very different defense attorney situation.
0: (laughs) Just a little bit. There'll be no flashy clothes and ties in this one. There'll be hats though, Jesse. Oh, excellent. Well,
1: I'm happy to hear that. You walked in here with a serious hat on from Optimo in Chicago. Uh, Optimo, that's right. I, I have to say, I did spot it on your head, and I checked in about it. I'm always glad when somebody's wearing a real hat in
0: here
1: uh, but you, <laughs> there <laughs> there's a fair amount of fumbling and schlubbiness in your role that would not that would not befit Johnny Cochrane. Tell me about how you how you got the the physical feeling mm. of this character.
0: Well, I think the physical feeling of him. Comes from the fact that he's not a defense attorney. He's by trade, he's a public defender. So um, the project begins with him at the tail end of he's about to retire, two weeks before he retires, and he's you know in the um, that, that space where you're questioning you know whether or not the past thirty years I've done anything. And he, I asked my wife, I say, Have I? Made a dent, have I done anything? She just gently you know just says you know the system is going to go on with or without us. just let's go, honey. It's time to go to to the next phase, and you know it's um my mother, who passed away four years ago of a l s taught us as the as the slow decline at the end there she all she could do was move her left thumb and blink her eyes taught us about the dignity of life and the cycle of life. And what are you here for? What are you going to do? And that's why every day is important. And that's why this particular character, for me, he had a choice to make because he was going about his life, as was Moses, as was my wife, Martha, you know, Anjanoo's character, and, and Dream Ward uh, was going about her, her character's life. Moses. She was Moses' mother, and everyone's just Moses was gearing up. The next day, he was going to be in college, going to college, and going to be on the Olympic team and serving, you know, our community well out there in the world. Uh, he's going. To, he was going to get out, and then life happened, and that's very. That's not black. That's not white. That's not Hispanic Latina. That's not. That's just life, and. What do you do when life throws you a curveball? How do you adjust? What do you do? You give up? Uh, do you throw it in? And some people, you know, people deal with, with tragedies and grief differently, and uh, everybody can't do it, as evidenced by the suicide rates are sky high these days. We're going to do a mental health um, book soon, um, but it's it's really it, it was I was so fascinated by this character and that moment of the Sophie's choice moment, the Franklin Roberts moment it'll be known as now where you what are you going to do? And what are the repercussions of that choice then when I say they're not getting him, they're not getting Moses, they cannot have him. And to my wife, who I promised that I was going to allow her to segue into politics and meek segue back into the home to take care of our 16 year old autistic son who needs me um so now he's juggling two things uh, the taking care of we can take care taking the load off his wife his wife's going into politics and and my health concerns are happening you know so much is going on and swirling and the story is is just about a man who's trying to do the right thing. Have you ever thought about retiring? No, no. Um, I look at uh, my the person that uh, I looked up to and still do, uh, to this day, James Earl Jones, and uh, he's still working. He's 90. You know, um, I think uh, Dave Winfield said it best when uh, he said he knew it was time to hang it up when he couldn't see the ball hit the bat anymore he couldn't follow the ball to the bat he said when he knew that when when he couldn't do that anymore it's time to stop cuz he would get hurt so um i think when the when the mind goes you got to let it go cuz you you have to still have to have a way to figure out how to get the words in there and come out in a cohesive manner so and it's not easy you, you know it's you know, I, I've learned that I know my lines based on what I'm doing, so I focus on the the actions, and then once I know the actions, I so that means I have to go into the rehearsals, into the the actual shooting of it, uh, knowing the lines just enough so that I can add in the physical, and uh, so it's 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 a little scary because I know that I don't really know it. I can memorize it all I want to. But when you get in there, they start throwing things at you. And you, you in your mind, you were walking around, but there's no, we're going to sit down on this. Oh. In my mind, it was a rectangle room. But no, you see the set, it's actually a circle. It's actually a, a, an oval room. So, And that's happened to me. So I've learned I, I can't make decisions. I can't know them so much that I'm, I'm not able to make adjustments.
1: I mean, the reason I ask you about retirement is not because I think you should retire. I Mm -hmm. I say keep going. That's my request Mm -hmm. to you. It's because, like, one of the things that this piece is about is looking at a life lived in a system over which you do not have agency, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you have influence, perhaps, but not agency, Mm -hmm. and trying to decide— what it means, <laughs> like what it means to press on something mm. and hope that something will change when it is, you know, when it is both hopeful and hopeless, right? Mm. And like when you're an actor, you don't have a ton of agency either. Like actor for an artist is a low agency gig mm. compared to a painter. You know what I mean? Right, right. Like you're always, you know, you're on Law and Order, Criminal Intent for a long time, mm. and like you know. Your job is to show up there and they hand you a page of different objections. and
0: <laughs> Bring me the evidence.
1: You know, you're serving that narrative. You know what I mean? Right. And you're also at the age where you could retire into the level of success. You and your wife as well. Your wife being a movie star mm. are at the level of success where you could retire. Mm. So I imagine that is like a kind of a relatable thing to think about like, well, gosh, I guess I have to think about what actually matters now.
0: You know, and but we've always done that. And uh, which is why we, we do the roles that we do, and we turn down the things that we turn down.
1: That is you and your wife?
0: Yes. You know, it, it's, it's like I was on Broadway, you know, the first seven years of my career in New York, just constantly on stage, you know, project after project after project. For my generation, I was on stage more than anybody that I know. It was a blessing, but I, I, I burned out. That's why I came out to LA. And then I didn't go back until that was 92 or 3. I did six degrees, uh, with Dr. Channing for about a year and a half at the Vivian Beaumont. And then I completely burned out. Um, lost my dad. And so I was, I had, I got to go away. I came to LA. So didn't go back until lucky guy, 2012, 13. And then, you know, just had to re-acclimate myself to the world. Because the world on stage is a completely different world than it is. And you have the play to carry you through. So that's a wonderful thing, but it it is a journey every day. It's not something where you can say, cut, and then we do the scene and we're done with it. No, we finished rehearsing that scene, or you finish that scene that night, and you're performing it, and you got to start it again. The whole process again of... Coming to the theater, getting yourself ready, you know, you know, the whole ritual of theater is a thing that as an actor, you have to do that to know the fear, the absolute fear that you have as a performer. That's why I say actors, performers, you know, are the most, one of the, some of the most courageous people to actually get up there and not know really what's happening. Yet,, you know, because you really don't know until after you open when the the pressure is all off, and then you, the new rhythm is just how do I do this? Give people the same show, same intensity, same value, same wonderful show, night after night after night. That's a different rhythm than the fear of getting up there when you just, at the early stages don't know what you're doing yet
1: we have so much more to get into, stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Courtney B. Vance. He starred in the original production of August Wilson's iconic play, Fences. He also won an Emmy for his role as Johnny Cochran in The People vs. O.J. Simpson. He's now starring alongside Ingenue Ellis in the new legal drama, 61st Street. That's on AMC now. Let's get back into our conversation. So you did Fences initially as a student Mm -hmm. as it was being developed Mm -hmm. at the when you were at the Yale School of Drama. Second
0: year. Second year. No, actually it was I think it was I was a first year student and but it didn't come I read it in first year, but it didn't come up for me until the second year. And I did the play and then it came up to go to Chicago to re rehearse it to go to Chicago at the Goodman Theater in my third year.
1: When did James Old Jones enter the picture? Was the he there from beginning. the beginning? Was the August very, Wilson around?
0: From the very beginning, August and Lloyd were simpatico. They were so tied to each other, and so so much so that when there was a, we almost didn't open the play because there was a conflict between the star and the producer because they saw the play ending twice, and so there was a big, unbeknownst to me, until the last minute. The the star, James Earl, and the producer, a young producer, and August Wilson and Lloyd Richards were at odds. And two days before we were supposed to open on Broadway, uh, Lloyd Richards said, I'm stepping down as director because I won't go against my playwright. And we all knew that it was about the ending. The August Wilson play ended with Gabe uh, trying to get James Earl Jones, the character, into heaven by blowing his horn, he's been saying that the whole play. And everyone knew there was no mouthpiece on the horn, so there was no sound gonna come out of it. But he's been saying he's gonna do that, so they know he has to blow the horn. And everyone knew in the play and in the audience there was no sound coming out of it. But he has to do it, because he's been saying it. James Earl and Carol Shornstein Hayes, the producer, said that, no, the play ends with Corey singing the song, mourning his father. That's the end of the play, and there was a battle of epic proportions in in San Francisco. We did the and the matinee. We did it one way, ending with me singing the song, and the play was over. The evening performance of the same day, we did the play with we did. I did that, and then Gabe came in and said, "You ready, Troy? I'm here," and he blew the horn, and so we went back and forth and back and forth, and they couldn't they couldn't decide, and it was it was ugly, unbeknownst to me, but it spilled over, and we all. Then when Lloyd stood up and said, I'm out, we all stood up and said, please, can't we, basically, can't we just get along? Can't we, We've we been doing this for two years. Are we, the play is a huge, it's going to be a huge hit. It's going to be a smash. And we all left the theater, and that was it. We knew that it was over. And the next day we were called in, and evidently they've reached a compromise. And August, or maybe it was Lloyd, Lloyd announced that August has asked him to stage a, Compromise, and the play went on to theater history.
1: I actually have a clip from the Broadway production Offenses. So you've been doing it for a few oh years, probably, by the time this was recorded. This was, I
0: think, done when we did the Tonys. Yeah, this is 1987. Yep. And How come you ain't never liked me?
1: Exactly. So James Earl Jones plays your dad in the show, mm-hmm. your son. And this is, I mean there's not much more setup needed than how come, you, how come you never liked me.
0: Can I ask you a question? What the hell you want to ask me? Mr. Is, is the one you got the questions for. How come you ain't never liked me? Lacked you? Who in the hell ever said, I got to like you? What law is there to say I got to like you. Do you want to stand up in my face and ask me some damn fool <laughs> question like that? Talk about liking somebody. Come here, boy, when I talk to you. Straighten up, gun. Ask <laughs> your question. What law is there to say I got to like you? None. All right, then. I saw
1: your head snap back while you were listening to that.
0: <clears throat> yeah, emotionally, I'm just I'm right back there. You know, and because it it really is about, because I've seen it played before and, you know, the, the issue is that we had three different renditions rehearsed completely and then performed three different times before it came to Broadway. So nobody will ever be able to get where we got to because of the way Lloyd Richards set up the August Wilson's plays to go around the country to different regional theaters with different productions three or four or five times before they came in. And so the idea, a lot of times I've seen it done where there's the young man playing Corey is just so, you know, it's a battle of wills, but it's not a battle. It's, he's just, as Rose comes out and says to Troy, after Troy's character sends Corey, my character, on to talk to Mr. Starwiki to get my job back, uh, she says, he just wants you to say, good job, son. That's all. The boy just wants you to give him some praise. And, you know, that's the beauty of great writing, is that you see James Earl's character's point of view, you see the young boy's point of view, you see Rose's point of view, and they're all right. And where the play just touches people so deeply is that eventually all of that's going to come to a head and you know it, you already know it's, it can't keep going like it's going. And eventually he's going to be a man 17 and he's not going to take it the way he took it when he was the young man saying, dad, how come you never liked me? You know, basically he said, daddy, daddy, I love you. Can you tell it back to me? And then James, his courage was, I ain't got time for that. and, You know, that as a young actor trying to figure out how to be up to those giants level and not, you know, tank the play because I'm just not good enough or ready to be able to. And they all took their time and waited for me and took me along. And, you know, uh, as I said, it's one of the seminal moments of my life to be able, and my, my parents were all involved in it and they just went to every version of it. And, you know, and, uh, it was just really a family, a uh, affair, especially, you know, the young boy from Detroit who says he wants to be an actor. And his parents are like, we sent you to Harvard and you're going to be an actor. <laughs> really? Okay, baby. We're so proud, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and the joy that I gave my mother and my father, you know, to be able, especially my mother, she saw all of it, to be able to, the culminating in the Emmy win for, you know, for Johnny Cochran, to be able to see that and know that, you know, that sacrifice that they made when they sent me to Detroit to Country Day School, when they made that summer, they asked me where I'm going to go to school. And I said, I'm going to St. Mary's of Bradford because I know we can't afford to go to Country Day. You know, but I'm good, Dad. No, son. In that moment, I knew my life spun. No, your mother and I are gonna sacrifice and send you to Country Day. And in that moment, I saw my life turn, and I knew I had a responsibility to make sure that whatever happened at Country Day, I was doing my best. Because they sacrificed everything for me to be able to go to that school. And when I won that Headmaster's Cup, which was the highest honor that, that Country Day gives. And the whole auditorium stood up. And I turned back and I looked at my father. And he was fumbling for his glasses. I knew that that was my thank you to him, to her, for all that they have done for me.
1: You grew up in Detroit, literally from what I understand, down the street from... Uh, Hitsville, USA, that headquarters eight hours. of Motown Records. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um,
0: we used to sit on the stoop and watching people come and go, and they finally, they said, would you guys get out of here, boy? Where are you? Go, go somewhere. So we would just sit there and watch people come and go.
1: Were you old enough to know
0: what that meant? We didn't know anybody. We were just hanging out. I was six. My sister was eight. We didn't know anybody. We didn't know anything. Maybe she knew. She probably knew. I didn't know. You know She's uh, like, that's Levi Stubbs. Right. <laughs> that's Smokey Robinson. You know, all of that. I, I mean, it's a museum now. I went back about three, four years ago, and I I thought it would be, you know, one building, and then they turned in. It It's actually the same two buildings, and they put a, you know, a little walkthrough. But it was, people were lined up around the block. I mean, it's a huge draw. You know, hopefully one day they'll actually build a, you know, a museum to a building that uh, you know really does it justice for what you know Barry Gordy and and Smokey and uh, Diane and all the the folks who made you know Motown what it was. You know, back when it was just you know let's just just make some good music. You know,
1: your family was really right in a bunch of kind of—in the crux of a bunch of social changes mm. in Detroit where you grew up, just by virtue of who they were and what the time was. You know what I mean? Like, mm. your family moved into a white neighborhood very shortly before white flight hit. Mm. White flight completely transformed Detroit.
0: Yeah. It just devastated our our neighborhood. And uh, we were on West Grand Boulevard. Which was you know uh, the tanks came up and down uh, our street, and the houses were set way back. It used to be it must have been a very, very wonderful upscale kind of neighborhood, and they had split these houses, which were set maybe a hundred feet uh, hundred and fifty feet back, so the lawns were long, and they they split these huge homes into four plexes, so there was two houses on the bottom, two apartments on the top. And we used to run from one side of the porch to the other and down the stairs and up the stairs. And I was into G.I. Joe and I used to, you know, the, when the the tanks came down the street, I, before my parents could grab me, I ran down to say hello to to soldier. I was seven, six, something like that. And the soldier turned his bayonet on me. And my parents finally got to me. And I was, of course, in a state of shock. But um, when we got to, when they finally bought a house. Well, hold up. And you're like maybe... Seven yeah i was about to say 8 6 or 7 cuz by 8 we had we had moved away but um when we moved to the neighborhood where my parents bought a house it was in 69 and uh the summer of 69 and they were it was five bedroom small bedrooms but it was a five bedroom house and it was all white and we were one of the few black families that moved over into that area. And uh, I guess shortly around that time, Coleman Young, the the first African-American mayor of Detroit, he had, you know, and you can't judge it by the day, but uh, he told the white folks to, you know, we don't need you, get out of our city. And they went, okay. And over that summer, they did. And uh, took their tax base and the good schools and they moved twenty five miles out, fifty miles out, and uh initially it was you know it's like, yeah, we got our city, but it was a death now, and our block went from all white and a few blacks to all black and a few whites, and our school flipped overnight, and our parents recognized and realized we would they would never get their money out of their uh house and we stood uh the focus of the school shifted from you know going to school and being you know uh, the grades and everything we still got a's um but uh the focus and the peer pressure was about what you clothes you had on and fighting and um and in the middle of the semester our parents snatched us out of there and put us in catholic schools and we went from being in an all black environment to being in an all white environment with no you know, discussion about how to navigate. How old were you? Fourth grade, 11, 12, something like that. My sister was sixth grade. So um, we had packed our bags, my sister and I, because when we got wind of what was about to happen, we packed our bags, and we were we had a little bag, we were going to run away. So like my parents, in the middle of the night, they found our little suitcases, little backpacks, whatever we had, and uh, we are going to another school, and they had a, a good friend of uh, theirs was uh, one of the teachers at Mother of Our Savior. Yeah, it was the name of the school.
1: We'll finish up with Courtney B. Vance in just a minute. We'll ask him what it's like to be married to Angela Bassett. He's the only guy who knows, and he's going to tell us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. <laughs> If you're sick of constantly arguing with the people closest to you about topics that really aren't going to change the world, we're here to take that stress off of your shoulders. We take care of it for you on We Got This with Mark and Hal. That's right, Hal. If you have a subjective question that you want answered objectively once and for all time for all of the people of the world questions like who's the best disney villain mac or pc or should you put ketchup on a hot dog that's why we're here yes i get that these are the biggest questions of our time and we're often joined by special guests like nathan Fillion, orlando jones and paget brewster so let mark and how take care of it for you on we got this with mark and how weekly on maximum fun It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with actor Courtney B. Vance, star of the new AMC show, 61st Street. Let's get back into our conversation. What is something about acting that you have learned from your wife, Angela Bassett? Mm.
0: There's nobody like her. She's a very good actor. She's beyond. And I'm like everyone else. I'm in awe. Of who she is and what she can do. and Can she? Okay.
1: The things that she
0: does, mm. I've never seen her on stage.
1: Mm. Things she does in a movie. Mm. Is she capable of doing those to you in your home?
0: <laughs> she is capable of it. <laughs> Thank God she's a nice person. Okay. She um, seems nice. She's yeah. sweetest. She's the sweetest. <laughs>
1: There's not a lot of people who could compete with James Earl Jones uh, on the power of a look, but I think she uh, might be
0: one of them. So, My goodness. She is... The sweetest Southern girl. She's from St. Pete, Florida. So, which is what you know, was endeared me to her. She's just as sweet as they come. I mean, the the movie roles. Uh, you know, she's Tina, and you know, setting the car on fire and walking away. But that's not who she is. She's the quietest, softest. You know, doesn't want to inconvenience anyone. You know, so. But she is, in terms of her her acting, there is nobody that outworks her. And on top of all of that, she's got a photographic memory. So, you know, once she starts something, she can be looking, she'll be looking at television. And on the commercial break, she'll learn her lines. And um, she has the ability to synthesize a hundred page of, of, I mean, she was uh, doing uh, surrogate work for Hillary Clinton. And uh, they gave her, there was just mounds and mounds of papers that she had to, Digest and then go out on the road and talk about you know in a crowd of people that were at a cocktail party and just talk about Hillary and her programs and her policies and I I saw the paperwork that she was going over and I'm like how is she going to do that? She gonna are you gonna take cards around with you, baby? What are you gonna? No, Courtney, I got to read all these papers and then I gotta I gotta go, honey. I gotta. Okay, let me let you get to it and. Went out there on the road and everybody was like, Courtney, she's a superstar. She's just, she's, it's all hers. It's like she, 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 wrote it. I said, I know, I, I know. I don't know anybody who can do that. You know, so if she, she could run for office, she could be, <laughs> you know, because when you actually see what the politicians do, they have people that come around them and they give them, okay, you, you know, when you see those debates those are, those are hours and hours of ingesting material so that you can be up there and speak without going, um, um, uh, what, as soon as you that um happens, you, that projects, you don't know what you're talking about. So you, it has to be in you. So I cannot do that. You know, and when she does speeches, she's the same way. She, I have to write it and, you know, start to write, you know, three months before and just add a little bit here and a little bit there and. You know, get my speech. She's, you know, eh. I said, baby, you're gonna write your speech. I'm I'm thinking about it, Court. Okay, it's tomorrow, huh? I know, I know. I, I, it's in my mind. I'm thinking about it. And on the way there, it's being written. I said, Who does that? And just goes up there, and I've seen her do a speech for ten thousand you know, African-American women in uh, Roanoke or Raleigh. I think it was Raleigh, in North Carolina. And she got up there and rocked that. It was like a rock concert. It was just, I said, oh my goodness, who is this woman?
1: You started your career sharing a stage with James Earl Jones, a fire hose of conviction and charisma, if ever such a thing existed in the earth a person with more presence than could possibly exist in the world. And, you know, as we, as we heard in that scene, you know, the character that you played in Fences was maybe a, a, not so far in manner from yours. You're sitting here across from me is you're a pretty gentle guy, mm. but recently you've had a couple of big parts as people with extraordinary conviction, extraordinarily convicted performers. In Johnny Cochran and CL Franklin, you know, those are two <laughs> 12 out of 10 performers, right? So, do you have to talk yourself into those choices? Like, do you have to get yourself to that place or is that facile for you? Is that just available to you to no, have that?
0: Not at all. You know, some roles for me are easier to slip into than others. And I have to make decisions because everything for me as a this, what's the obstacle and how am I going to deal with it? And for me, Johnny Cochran, I had met him, you know, at a party that a friend of uh, my wife and I, I's, a dear friend of my wife and I, Mr. Ren Brown invited us to. And we, we, but I, you know, I was, I was shy and, you know, he was the life of the party and I was just glad to be there. And so I didn't really meet him per se that I remember. But the decision I had to make was, what am I going to do? Because there's as much information on him as there's on anybody on this earth. So, and there's much video footage of him. But I felt that I would be overwhelmed if I began that process and that I would be, you know, trying to imitate him. So I made the decision not to look at anything and not to read anything except Jeffrey Toobin's book, Uh, The Run of Your Life and I read it twice and I saw that in when I read the book I saw that he his mother put him in an all white school for grade school or high school something like that and that uh, she knew she said that he's the one because he had four brothers and sisters something like that and she said he's the one to be able to deal with that and those those white young people and the teachers will lead him he'll be able to handle it and be able to find his way and be led up up and I said, wow, that's what my parents did. I said, that's all I need. I read the book two times, put it down. Because I knew that once we started doing the project and we would be doing 10 episodes and then we I knew we were gonna be doing two and three at the same time, I wouldn't have time to look at footage. I just need to get a kernel of truth and walk out on faith. And that's what I did. Because I, I said, the scripts are so good if I miss some nuance, I think the audiences will forgive that in me. So that's for that one, that's how I approached it. I said, I'm going to go out on faith. And because Johnny Cochran did amazing things and passed away. And we actually went to his home going at West Angeles Church of God in Christ. And so I said, I'm living. I'm breathing. Right now, for me, I'm going to just be me as I'm reading him, doing him, and hopefully the two of those will come together. And I jumped out there, jumped off the diving board and went for it. It is not that simple. This is the United States of America and we are defending a black man who is fighting to prove his innocence. Now I know, I don't have to give anyone here a civics lesson about the historic injustices visited upon black men for no other reason other than they're black. We didn't introduce that into this trial. We didn't introduce that into this case. It is a plain and simple fact. But we would not be doing our job if we did not at least talk about how race plays a part in this trial. Now, if that is playing the race card,
1: so be it. I feel like faith is a good word there because it is, right, like I said conviction before, I think, but... It's a faith walk. Right, like... Johnny Cochran, a defense attorney, he doesn't know if his client is guilty or not. No, but he has to believe that his client is not guilty, or else how can he? Do he doesn't his want job? to know. It they, doesn't matter. They don't want to know. It they don't want to matter. know
0: whether you're guilty or any, just the facts. And we're going to manipulate the facts, and that's what they do. I mean, it's just. But that, he
1: also, like, in any situation where he didn't belong, right? Whether he's the black guy in an all-white school or mm-hmm. whatever, it's act like you know, right? It's like you just got to step out across and. And <laughs> keep he, walking he, until you realize there's no ground underneath you. That's
0: right. And most of the times, I remember when they were doing that 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 scene where they visited O.J.'s house, that, you know, he understood that the trial was not about the truth. He understood that the trial was not whether he did it or not. He understood that the trial was about celebrity. It was about black versus white. And so when when Marsha Clark started, he, he knew that he saw the, the sheets that people said what was important to them and how they saw him and how they saw her. He saw what the juries had said about him and her, and he took it to heart, and he made mental notes, and she saw and said, eh, that's not important. I know what I'm doing. They'll, they'll believe me because she thought this case was like any other case that she had tried. It was not. It's not about like any case that she had tried, and she needed help, and she didn't realize until... But until it was too late, too far in the case when she realized, like, well, they think I'm cold and hard. Let me change my look. By that time, it's too late. What are you doing? What, what are you she's changing her look? <laughs> look at she's... So she was chasing it as opposed to being on top of it. And Johnny recognized, I'm on. I'm going to be on top of this.
1: And you as an actor, you can't chase it. You got to. You got to jump out.
0: <laughs> you got to be on top of it. You got to be right from the, you know, just jump out there and go for it. And just you know, and because we're doing we're doing three, four, five episodes at the same time, so you can't be okay. Hold on, let me look at my video footage. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm ready now. You can't do that. You just got to go. And casting wise, as soon as I put on that wig, I said, "Oh, that's me. I do look like him. I'm ready." The wig was the key to my character. The wig was. Anyway, thank you so much.
1: Well. Courtney B. Vance, I I could talk to you about this for for another couple hours, but we're out of time. So uh, thank you for making the time to come and talk to me. Great interview. Great interview. Thank you. Courtney B. Vance, folks. His newest show is called 61st Street. You can watch it now on AMC. Uh, (laughs) Look, Courtney's been in a lot of amazing things. But rent the movie Hamburger Hill or watch it on streaming or even just type it into YouTube. And watch the scene where he's teaching everybody how to use a toothbrush, because it is amazing. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. The other day I came outside and everybody was out on the street on my block. And it turns out somebody in the middle of the day had just walked down the street, carving the letter R into everyone's car hood gotta go to the body shop our show is produced by speaking into microphones our senior producer is kevin ferguson our producers are jesus ambrosio valerie Moffat, and richard Roby. we get booking help from Merritt davis our interstitial music is by dan wally also known as djw our theme song is called huddle formation it's recorded by the group the go team thanks to them and to their label memphis industries bullseye is on youtube twitter and facebook can follow us in all of those places. We share our interviews there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.